welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Let us hear the Word of God together, and uh, we'll uh, go into the teaching together. We'll move into Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 today. Paul writing to his dear, beloved church in Colossae. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is God's perfect word. May its truth break upon our hearts and fresh power today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, as you know, we've been moving through this epistle verse by verse, and uh, the last section, beginning in chapter 1, verse 24, and uh, sweeping now through verse 5, is all about Paul's uh, defense of his ministry. He needed to defend his ministry as a pastor from critics, and so it's a, a wonderful autobiographical look into his life. He's defending his ministry and explaining what it's like to be a pastor, and so I've entitled this uh, section of scriptures as I teach them a pastor's life. He's already talked about a number of things. Back in verse 24 and 25, he talked about his calling as a stewardship given to him by God. Then he talked about a pastor's passion where we find in verse 27, he was passionate about the believers in his ministries discovering the presence of Christ, Christ in them, the hope of glory the power and person of Jesus in their personal lives. And then last time we looked at a pastor's purposes, last two verses in chapter one, where Paul talked about what he toiled for and struggled for, and that was the shaping of people and the character of Jesus so he could one day present them at the throne of the Father. And that is every pastor's purpose in his ministry. The final dimension that he talks about in this section of scriptures is a pastor's struggle. We know that he talks about the struggle that he has, verse 1, for all of these believers. In fact, in this whole section of Scripture, Paul has often talked about ministry as a great struggle. He says it is a great struggle in verse 1, but in the previous verses, he used words that describe how difficult ministry is. He talked about it as a ministry of sufferings in verse 24, and afflictions that are taken for the name of Jesus. He talked about it as a life of toil, which which means working until you can barely stand to go on, and struggle. The Greek word agon, from which we get agonize, is the word that was used in verse 29, and again he repeats it in verse 1 of our text, I have a great struggle in ministry. 
And I've been honest with you about the fact that the Bible tells us and life experience for pastors tells us that the ministry is a high-stress, high-risk profession. I've gone over some of the statistics with you that that 50% of all pastors that enter the ministry have resigned by year 10, and that it's only a rare pastor who is in the ministry long enough to retire in it. It is a high-risk, high-strain, high-departure profession. One of the reasons for that is because the struggles are so supernaturally powerful. But there's also a lot of personal disappointment that causes pastors to wonder if what they're doing has any value. I've gone through that. I was talking with one of our elders this past week or two, and he mentioned uh, that uh, he uh, worked alongside a, a former pastor now out in the professional marketplace. And he asked him why he left the ministry after years of being in it. And this pastor said, I left because I never saw anybody change. Now, that's a very real emotional experience for someone who's invested in seeing people grow and change. And that can be true unless you see it a certain way. And I've learned over the years of my ministry through disappointment and really understanding the nature of what I'm about that you can become very discouraged as you battle in this work, unless you see it a certain way. I've learned that you can struggle either negatively as a pastor or positively. You can struggle negatively and and it can overwhelm you in the negatives if, if all you believe you're doing is struggling against sin and against problems. You can fall into the negative that way. Now you should struggle against sin and against problems. And Paul did read all through his life. He was battling against sin in the lives of his flock and, and problems that were caused by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we have to battle against that as pastors. But if that's your only focus, you will become unendingly discouraged because if you haven't noticed, there's no end point to the development of sin in people's lives. <laughs> And there's no end point to how far down this society is going to go. Greater problems emerge all the time, according to Romans 1. So there will always be more sin to battle in the life of a flock member and more problems to battle as your ministry is involved in an evil world. So if that's your only focus, discouragement may capture you. But Paul here talks about what I've learned over the years, and that is that we do, we do struggle negatively, but we ought to focus on struggling positively. What do I mean by that? The great struggle of ministry is not just keeping sin out of people's lives. In fact, the greater struggle is forming Jesus in them and seeing them grow in their knowledge of the Word of God and and in their ability to trust Christ in their lives so that they are growing into people of great spiritual power and knowledge. So, In that sense, a pastor struggles positively, not just to defeat sin, but to develop people. Do you see the distinction? Paul makes that very clear here because he talks about the fact that I'm struggling, verse 1, and I have a goal that you will reach, verse 2, the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. That's a positive outcome he battles for in the lives of his people. So he's struggling positively, not just to defeat sin, but to develop people and their knowledge of Jesus and their ability to trust Christ for more and more things, to live into maturity in their lives, to meet their spiritual conflicts, and to come out more and more victorious. When you do that as a pastor, you're working with the Holy Spirit because that's his objective. 
And as you do that, you will see people change. And I do. And I have through the years of my ministry. And I see people change here all the time. I see you grow in Christ. I see your knowledge escalate in what the Bible teaches. And I see more and more of you learning to trust God in greater difficulty. And I see Christ formed in you. So I struggle positively and I am encouraged by God. Now, that's how Paul struggled. And we're going to get an insight into this passage to a pastor's struggle. It's a struggle that he labored in all of his life, but he always struggled with hope. The first three verses in this section talk about what he battled for and what he wanted to see his people grow in. But then toward the end, he talks about his hope. Verse 4, I say this in order that there was a purpose to everything he was doing. That when I'm absent in body, you will, you, I'm still with you in spirit. And my hope is that you will not be deluded with the arguments of false teachers, that you won't go off the path of Christ, but in reality, you're going to be firm. Look at the last part of verse 5, in your faith in Christ. So you can see there's a struggle in the first three verses, but the goal and the hope is that people will grow and become firm in Jesus Christ. That's the whole idea. So I want to talk about a pastor's struggle in the perspective of what he hopes to see in his people. And then, then lastly, I'm going to talk about the hope in terms of why a pastor does all of this. Again, this is give you insight into what a pastor like myself goes through week to week, day to day, why I'm in it, so you can pray more for me. And hopefully you can look for these vision points in a pastor in your life. First of all, a pastor's struggle, and then we'll get to his hope. So the pastor's struggle in verses 1 to 3, actually there's six things that you can learn in that, that segment of Scripture about how pastors labor and what they struggle for. First thing you can learn is that it is difficult. Just because it's a hopeful struggle and a noble one doesn't mean it's not difficult. Look at what Paul says in verse 1. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. This is a battle to lead people into maturity in Christ. It is a difficult battle. And again, he uses the word struggle, the same word he used in verse 29, agon in the Greek, and agonizomai, and we get agonized from it. It was very familiar to the people of his time. They were in a, uh, a culture that, like ours, worshipped the arena, where athletes would struggle in competition. And agonizomai was a Greek word that talked about how a, an athlete in the Greco-Roman games would strive to win the prize. It was a, a sweat-stained word. It was a word that talked about a runner straining toward the finish line to finish a marathon as he ran into the arena. Or a wrestler agonizing, muscles quivering, face determined to defeat his opponent. It was all about agony. It was all about exertion. It was about battle. And so what he did was he took a word from their common language about the arena and athletic competition, and he moved it into the spiritual realm to illustrate spiritual battle. And he wanted them to know that even though he wasn't with them in person, he was agonizing for them in prayer and in his heart. He was involved in spiritual battle for his people, and pastors always must do that. You can see him illustrated in another place in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. 
He talked about the battle of the believer and the, and the battle transfers to the life of a pastor. Verse 12, Paul said in Ephesians 6, for we all believers do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. What are they? The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul said that the difficult dimension of the Christian life is that it's not just a, a battle against every everyday problems. It's a battle against supernatural enemies who seek your destruction. Every true believer is in that battle. Pastors are in that battle for everyone. That's the distinction. You battle in your own life or your family's spiritual struggles. Pastors are to take on a spiritual battle in prayer and in concern for every heart and life that they influence. And it is a great battle that we, that we wage and we wage it long term. One victory is experienced by one person in your flock and God opens up another situation that you walk into where you're involved in a fresh battle for them over sin or over deception or over sorrow or whatever it might be. So your battles may end, but a pastor over a flock, he enters into battles that come and come and come. And Paul said, it is a difficult experience for me. Interesting, Ephesians 6, 12 the, the uh, word for wrestle there was the Greek word palo, and it meant to vibrate or quiver. And the idea perhaps was that Paul said, when we're in spiritual battle, we're up against such a foe that we have to use every ounce of our strength so that the muscles of our being quiver as we battle against him. The idea in, in, in Greco-Roman wrestling in that time a wrestler claimed victory by getting his opponent down on the, on the mat and he would hold that, that opponent's neck down with one hand. That was the sign of victory. And Paul was saying, we battle in such a way that, that we, we battle so that the very being that we are quivers with the exertion. It is not for cowards. Spiritual battle. See, the devil's goal against every Christian is to defeat you, to put you to the mat, to dominate you, to circle his hand over your neck and keep you under his domination. But Paul says we wrestle against him. And at the end of Ephesians 6 says we can stand against him and hold our ground. Pastors wrestle in that for all their flock. Second, you can see that this battle, this struggle, is for all the people that a pastor cares for. Look at it. He says in Colossians 2.1, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, all the believers that were reading this in the church at Colossae, and for those in Laodicea. There were a circle of churches that Paul had influenced. He hadn't been there in person, but people that he discipled had gone and started those churches. And so Paul was getting letters from these churches, reports from these churches, and and everybody in those churches, even though he had not seen them face to face, he says, was on his heart. And he was committed to all of them. And he battled for all of them. He influenced all of them. He was doing it primarily through prayer, long distance. Colossians 1.9 will tell you that. He says, from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you be filled with the knowledge of God's will. So Paul was battling long distance and by letter and counsel. So pastors battle for all those that they care for. It's interesting that pastors really should never lose a heart for the people that they've influenced over the years. People never leave a pastor's heart in one sense. 
was uh, concerned about a particular missionary that we've sent out this last week and, and was able to reach them. And I just wrote a, a, an email to just out of concern, some things that were on my heart about him and sent that email. And it was such a joy to receive a joyous email back and a description of how God was answering prayer in some of their battles and an added prayer list for me. I almost felt like I was right there standing on the dusty soil with them. It was a thrill because they were on my heart. People should never leave a pastor's heart in that sense. There are still people that I ministered to decades ago. I've been at this a while. I'm long in the tooth as a pastor (laughs) with ups and downs, highs and lows, sorrows and joys. And there are people that I was able to minister to decades ago now whom I still follow and I still am concerned over and counsel. So a pastor's struggle, it's difficult. Number one, it's for all those he cares for, Paul said, there was an endless array of lives that Paul had been a part of and he never lost a heart for them. Third, the passage teaches, this is very important, that a pastor's battle for his people is primarily against deception. You know, the whole context of the epistle to the Colossians, it's a, it's a letter written to defeat false teaching that was attacking the church at Colossae. So the whole context of Colossians argues for that. But don't miss the fact that Paul said, I am in a great struggle, verse 1. Now go down to verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Why was Paul struggling for this church? Primarily because he was afraid they were going to be deceived with false doctrine. I'll tell you what, I've seen Christians be tempted and, and, uh, and, and fall in, in moral sin. I've, I've seen Christians uh, be tempted and, and, uh, and make bad financial decisions. I've seen Christians make bad relational decisions. All of those are points in time and their events and decisions from which recovery is possible. Isn't that true? even falling into substance abuse as Christians. There's a, pro- there's a process of coming out of that. But I'll tell you this, the Christians that I've seen fall and pray to deception in truth, false doctrine. That is a road from which few return. Because it governs the very way you look at who God is and who your hope is placed in. It is the most deadly thing to happen to a Christian. And so Paul says, I am struggling for you and I don't want any of you to be deluded. This is all about preventing deception in your life. Because of that, he focuses here on the fact that his battle is about them coming into more of a knowledge of the truth. So that brings in the last three dimensions of discovery here. A pastor's struggle is difficult. It's for all those that he cares for, and it's primarily against deception. And the next three and the last three things I'll talk about here, focus on that. A pastor's struggle, fourthly, is focused on spiritual confidence. Take a look at the next phrase. He says, I'm in battle, verse 1 for you. This is what I'm battling over, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Paul is focusing on the fact that I'm battling especially for you, Colossians, so that you come into a deeper knowledge of the truth. 
I want you, first of all, to be focused on spiritual confidence, he says. I want your hearts to be encouraged. Now you say, well, that says encouraged there. How do you get confidence out of that? And isn't he talking about their hearts? Isn't he talking about comforting their hearts? Well, we look at it from the English, and that's kind of what we think, because we have a couple dimensions that we take as we look at this passage automatically. Number one, we look at the word heart, and we think about it the way Americans look at the heart. Westerners look at the heart. Westerners, modern Westerners look at the heart because we're a romanticized culture. We look at the heart as entirely a place of emotions, sentiment. It's, it's a place in us that responds to experience, a place of emotional response to experience. And, and so we think of the heart completely in emotional terms, a heart of love or a heart of discouragement or a heart of joy or whatever it is. Purely emotional, right? And since now in the Western society, we believe that anything we feel is true, you can really see how confusing we can be. But that's not how Paul's readers understood what he is talking about, because when Paul used the word heart, the Greek word cardia, from which we get cardio and cardiology, he was talking about the inner dimension of a person, not just their emotions, but also their intellect and their will. Very important. Our modern culture is just the place where we have emotions and feelings, not to the Greeks and the Romans. It was considered to be the seat of the mind and the will. It represented more than emotions. It was where people did their thinking and made their decisions. The, the, the heart was, was a place where you contemplated truth and decided what you were going to believe and what you were going to do for your life. And true, biblically, also, we can say this is. Proverbs were told in Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So the, the heart is the place where, where people made decisions about what's true, what's not true, what's right, what's wrong, what I'm going to do, what I'm going to believe, where I'm going to go, where I'm going to direct my life. It was the control center, the inner control center of the real you. A lot more than emotions. Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So the heart was a place not just of emotion, but of perception, of understanding what truth was. Not just perception, but decision, the inner control center of the real you. And God's goal is that that real you, the inner you, be dominated by truth. Dominated by truth. Man, we need to hear that today. Because our Western culture believes that you should be dominated by emotion and situation. No, no, no. The Bible tells you it's exactly the opposite. So he says, I want your hearts to be encouraged. So when he talks about hearts there, read him as saying, I want your inner man, that, that person that looks at truth and that decides how they're going to respond to life, I want that part to be encouraged. Now we go to the word encouraged. Again, we look at that as just kind of telling somebody positive things and, and just kind of building them up with encouraging words. Not completely. The Greek word parakaleo, it's a beautiful word. It meant to come alongside someone, to be called alongside. Para meant on side, kaleo to call. Someone who was called alongside in your life to help you or strengthen you. It wasn't just emotion that they were there for. It was there to strengthen you. It was used, for example, if you were on trial for your life in a court, you could call alongside a, a counselor a lawyer from that culture, and he would stand with you and he would equip you with truth about how to defend your case. 
So it doesn't just mean emotional encouragement. The Greek word meant strengthening a person and bringing truth into their life so that they grew encouraged. One author I read this last week said this, it meant to strengthen. It meant to provide a strong, courageous inner person. It meant to develop an intellect and a will that will act heroically for God. It meant to give somebody what they needed to have a firm mind, a mind that had courage, a mind that had conviction, a mind that truly believed, a mind that had principles, a mind that could stand against deception. So now look at it. Paul was saying, I'm battling for you. One of the things I'm battling over is that your, your hearts, that inner you that decides what's true and where you're going to go, what you're going to believe, would be encouraged. Read that, strengthened. So that when you're strengthened, you'll have confidence in what you believe and you'll know how to stand your ground. That's so important because he's talking here about being able to stand against deception. If you don't know and you're not confident in the truth of the Bible that you're taught and you believe, you'll be tipped over by deception. Doesn't that make sense? So he's saying, I know deception's coming your way, and I want your inner man, your inner hearts, to be filled with confidence. I want you to be grounded in biblical truth so you can stand. So it's about knowing what the Bible says and knowing Jesus well enough to trust what he said. Don't miss that. A lot of people can memorize verses or can, can, can read books and be intellectually impacted. But I'll tell you that old preacher's illustration, you've probably heard it, some of you guys have heard it a zillion times, where a preacher said, don't let this stay here, but let it travel the 18 inches to your... Yeah. That's where we decide what we're going to do with the truth. Here's how we perceive the truth in the new mind the scripture says we have. But in the new man, in the depths of who you are, you decide what you're going to do with that truth and you're going to decide just how much you know you can trust Jesus. This comes through teaching. This comes through exhortation from a pastor to step out in faith. He's saying all of that. I want you to be confident in what you believe. I want your hearts to be built up. Next, he says, it's also focused on spiritual unity. This is interesting. He says, I want you all, next phrase, to be knit together in love. There he's talking about all the believers. He says, I want you to be knit together. Interesting word in the Greek. It meant pressed together, under pressure, intentionally moved into kind of one group. Part of what he was talking about here was in addition to loving one another in the fellowship, which is true. He says, I want you to be knit together in love. He was also saying, I want you all to have confidence in the truth as a church. I want you all to have hearts that know what you believe and will stand for what you believe. I want you to be pressed together so that your whole church has confidence in the word of God. Why is that important? They were facing false teachers. You know what false teachers do? They just cherry pick. They're like wolves that follow a, a herd and they see a, a member of the herd that's tiring a little bit or that might be a little weaker physically or maybe even sick and it begins to stagger and fall behind. Where do the wolves go? They go for the one that's on its own. False teachers do the same thing. I've never seen false teachers come and immediately stand in my church and say, I want your pulpit. 
I did see one pastor dumb enough to do that once, but it never happened to me. No, but I have seen them many times all of a sudden show up, pulling away and clawing it away at a member of my flock that was weak and on their own. That's where you enter into battle. Oh, no. Paul says you're you're able to face deception if you have spiritual confidence, if your heart is encouraged that what you know in the Word of God is really true, and that also all the believers around you are knit together with the same conviction. Never forget that error always separates. That's what error does. It seeks to separate, pull people away, and one by one, pull them away, and then maybe send them back into the body so that they can infect the body on their own. I've seen it happen. This is why churches need a body of truth that they're committed to. This is why our church has a body of doctrine that we are committed to. And we've been committed to it for almost five decades. Doctrine matters. Truth matters. It's why we have a body of elders who are called to shepherd that truth, to guard it, to teach it. It's why we're careful what's taught here. It's why we're careful how ministry is done here. It's not because we're control freaks. Believe me. We as pastors and elders... We don't want another situation to have to get into. We don't want to to have more work on our hands. to No, it's because we have a responsibility to see that the flock is knit together in the truth we all believe. That's why when we baptized just a few moments ago, you saw Pastor Sam ask certain questions. He read those questions. That language has been part of the edge of that baptistry for decades. It's been read by pastors who are in heaven today. When we baptize, we want to make sure that the doctrine we teach is affirmed by the people we baptize. Truth matters. Those words haven't changed. We want you to know that turning to Christ means something. Believing in what Jesus did on that cross and died for you to do means something. We want you to know that truly believing in that should mean something. We want truth to guide your decisions in your life. I think I'm making my point. So it's focused on spiritual confidence. I want your hearts to be encouraged. I want you to know and have confidence in what you believe. And I want all of you to be knit together in that belief. You're safer that way. And then lastly... It is focused on spiritual satisfaction. He goes on and he says, I want you being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Look at the words. I want you to reach into all the riches of what God's word has to say. I want you to find full assurance. I want you to be filled with the knowledge of God's mystery. I want you to know everything you need to know so that you're going to be satisfied that you know what you need to know. Full assurance, that phrase governs that whole section of the passage. What did it mean to be fully assured? It meant to be full of confidence and conviction. It meant to be satisfied that what you do know about the Bible is true about the Bible. What you do know about Jesus Christ is true about Jesus Christ, and you don't need to fool around with anybody who says, oh, they've got something else for you. 
You don't need to pay attention to anyone's bells and whistles idea of some new dimension of Christianity or some secret that they've just uncovered that will guide you into a greater Christian life. No, because you already have a full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of who God is and what he has said. It's very important. That's the greatest defense against false teachers. The greatest defense. Now, there are three dimensions in which he wants them to be satisfied spiritually. Number one, he wants them to be satisfied that what the Bible says is true. He says, I want you to reach all the riches of full assurance and look at the word of understanding. As you probably know, the Greek language is, is, is the, the perfect language in, for, the, for God's word in the New Testament sense to have been given to us in because it's so precise and it's so varied at the same time. There are a lot of different words for one idea in the Greek. The Greek word for understanding here, suneimi, meant it came from two words. It basically meant bringing, thi- bringing things together. Soon means together. Emi means to, me, means to kind of throw them together or send them together. So it's the idea of bringing together truth. Understanding here in this, in this text means the ability to understand concepts and see relationships between them. In the context of the Bible... It means the ability to to bring biblical truths together from all over the scripture into an organized whole so that you can apply those to your life. If if you want a different word, you should have been here last week because the word is called doctrine. Remember I said it would be important? That's what Paul says. If you really understand the Bible, you're able to bring together, sunami, all that the Bible teaches about things. All that the Bible teaches. Now, why is that important? I have never seen this, this principle change. False teachers always begin with one isolated text or one scriptural idea, and they build an entire kingdom of deception out of that. You look at it time after time, you'll see it. They'll take one isolated verse, they'll pull it out of its context, and then amplify it with all they think it should mean, and then they'll build a whole set of teachings that will lead you into deception. What's the way you defeat that? They may bring you one verse and say, now see, this, is, this verse proves this new teaching I have for you. If you have biblical understanding, you will simply say, you know, that verse, as you look at it, may be interpreted to say that, but you know what? The whole of the Bible says the opposite. That's how you, that's how you strangle false teaching in its crib. How can you do that? Only if you're a person with full assurance of understanding and you've done some time in the Word so you know what the fullness of the Bible teaches about whatever that person may be pushing. Does that make sense to you? That's why you can't just be a John 3.16 Christian. You just can't. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. People that essentially hold on to the beginning of their Christian life and the only Bible verse they've ever really explored in any depth is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have eternal life. That's the diving board of doctrine. (laughs) But you got to get into the pool. You do. This is what God is calling you to do. Do you think the, this is, was put in the scriptures for no reason? This was written for you today. You say, I'm a young Christian. Good, get started. You say, I'm an older Christian. I really haven't done much. Well, you got a lot of ground to make up. Get started. 
What do I do? Keep coming to church and listen to somebody that opens the word, get into a class, get into a group, get into somebody's life. They, they can interact with you about the word and start learning how to put it all together. me to put it all together doctrinally. So you're satisfied that what the Bible says is true. Second way you want them to be satisfied is satisfied that what Jesus did is sufficient. That's the next phrase. Not only do I want you to have a full understanding of what the scriptures teach, I want you to have a knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. What's this all about? Well, he's playing on words there because the false teachers that were, were, were plaguing the Colossian church were all about the mysterion in the Greek, the mystery. They had a little cult going on, basically, and they said what Jesus taught was a good beginning. What Jesus might have done on the cross was a good act, but we have new knowledge that's been revealed to us in our spiritual visions from God that you need to know more of. You need to be initiated into this. And so they, they had this select knowledge that they said was out there that was in addition to the scriptures and in addition to who Jesus was. And they were leading these people like with breadcrumbs with their little teaching. And the person would say, do I know enough yet? And they say, oh, you're getting there. Next, next class, do I know enough yet? Well, not quite. It's very mysterious. Did people ever get there? No, because the false teachers used that as a carrot that they never got to because it gave them power. Take a look at any cult in America today. Identical image. Oh, we have special revelation. There's a deeper teaching. There's a new book. There's a new revelation. Do I know it all? Not yet. Those that are part of our secret inner circle do, but you'll get there. No, that's not what mystery means in the Bible. A mystery in the Bible was defined as something that God had previously hidden, but now has made known. It's an open thing to those that are his children. So when we look at the mystery of Christ, Christ demonstrated as he lived, died, and rose again, and now the New Testament explains what God wanted us to know about Christ. There are three big things that were mysterious to people in the Old Testament time that are very clear in the New. The first is that Jesus, God's Son, is fully God. Take a look at 1 Timothy 3.16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Here we have the mystery of who Jesus is explained. What mystery was revealed in Christ that people had a shadowy understanding of in the older times, but now it's very clear to anybody that knows Christ and knows their scripture in the New Testament era. It is that Jesus Christ is fully God. Verse uh, 16 says, he who God was manifested in the flesh. The, 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 The mystery that Jesus brought into clarity was that God assumed human, human form, became 100% God, became 100% man. And he was therefore able to go to the cross for you, suffer in your place, but perfectly as eternal God, take eternal wrath so that you would not have to face the penalty for your own sins. So Jesus Christ, number one, is fully God. That's a part of the mystery of Christ that we now know. What were the Colossian false teachers arguing? They were saying Jesus was not God. He was kind of an emanation from God. He was more like an angel. And there's millions of angels. But there wasn't something really distinct about Jesus. My friend, you're hearing that in many spiritual quarters in our world today. So 
the, the first part of the ministry, the mystery rather, that was unveiled when Jesus came, lived, died, and rose, is that Jesus is God in human flesh. Secondly, that he's sufficient. Not only his deity, but his sufficiency, last part of the verse, he was taken up in glory. He ascended into heaven after his cross work and his resurrection. What did that mean? It meant that what Jesus did on the cross for you to satisfy the wrath of a holy God was acceptable to that holy God. And when Jesus ascended into heaven and walked back into the throne room, it meant that God the Father accepted his payment for your sin. That means when you die, as Carol Green passed away this last week, boom, you step into the throne room. And your great high priest is there waiting for you. And he's showing the father the wounds in his hands saying, this too is one whom I died for. And the father says, you're right, son, I've I've, I've accepted your sacrifice. So deity of the deity of Jesus was the mystery made clear, the sufficiency of what he did on that cross. What is it that people today in false teaching teach against? Christ did not do it all for you. You need our system of knowledge. You need our new rules. You need our, our classes. You need whatever it is. And they put people under legalism and bondage. Here's the last not only the deity of Jesus and the sufficiency of Jesus, but I call it the inuity of Jesus. <laughs> Just made up my own theological word. Colossians 1, 27, he says, we proclaim the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The other mysterious dimension of how God was going to interact with his people that Jesus Christ made clear in the New Testament illustrates is that God not only came to earth as a man, that he not only died with full sufficiency for your sins, but he rose from the dead and now can live in person in his people. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says that's part of the mystery too. So when he, when he says in Colossians 2, I want you to come into the full understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, those are the three things. That he's fully God, that he was a full sacrifice, and that he can now be fully present in who you are and live his life out through you in great power. Wow. I tell you what, if you knew all those things, why would you want to know anything else? And that's the implication of the third thing. He wants you to be satisfied that that's all you'll ever need to know. He says in the next phrase, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Once you know this wonderful Christ, and you know the mysterious truths about him, that he's fully God, he's sufficient in his sacrifice for you, that he dwells within you today in the person of the Holy Spirit, who is able to lead you, Jesus said, into all truth, you're not going to need or want anything else but what Jesus has to teach you. And by the way, your discovery of that will never end. So he wants you to be satisfied that you know what the Bible says is true, satisfied that what Jesus did is sufficient, and finally satisfied that, that he's all you're ever going to need to know, and what he has as he reveals it to you through the word of God is all you're ever going to need to know. It's a full assurance. Interesting, you go back up to that word assurance. Uh, it was translated in some Greek manuscripts to describe a ship under full sail. Isn't that awesome? So when he says, I want you to have full assurance, verse 2, of the understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, if, if you know Jesus Christ personally and you're growing in his truth daily, it's as though the truth of God is filling the sails of your life in the person of the Holy Spirit, and he's moving you onward to be like Jesus and to face life with Jesus, and you're under full sail. My question to you is, are your sales up? Think about it, Christian. 
If you're trying to battle through the Christian life in your own strength and you're, you're barely in the scripture and you're not in fellowship with others and you really don't have much of an understanding about how far you can trust Jesus with things, are your sails up? Not really. You're just kind of puttering around the little harbor with that little extra motor they give to boats that don't go anywhere. <laughs> no. Have the courage to flip that little trolling motor up. Get some lessons about how to raise the sails how to steer it under wind and get after where God wants you to go. Full assurance. Well, that's what a pastor struggles with. Quickly now, I know we have to close. Let's take a look at the last two verses where he talks about his hope for all this, why he wants all of this to happen. Look at verse four. I say this, everything in the first three verses, all about my struggle for you to be grounded in the truth and to know how far you can trust Jesus. I say this in order that purpose, hope, that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Who's he talking about? False teachers. Then, and now it's been preserved in scripture because they're part of every generation, and now to us. False teaching. I hope that you will not be susceptible to it. Pastors build people up in what they know, doctrine, and who they know, Jesus, in the hope that those people can withstand deception. That's why I teach up here. Now, all truth-teaching pastors have hope about that in two ways. This is, with this, I'll close. Number one, a hope for biblically wise people. That's what he says. I, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. The word delude, interesting, paralogizomai, it meant to, to throw something or to put an argument alongside something else. Paro is alongside, logizomai, to argue, to reason. What does a false teacher do? They take something that is true and then they throw their false version right alongside of it and try to pull you away from what's true by arguing a false version of it. That's what delude means to Throw a falsehood alongside the truth. Looks like it, feels like it, but it appeals to your flesh and your mind. Now, how do they do this? Well, he says they do it with very plausible arguments. A lot of false teaching today, in fact, all of it, makes sense to the, the limited human mind. And so a false teacher will take a truth you may believe about God that is true and then reason alongside that into error. Let me give you some examples of how that may be happening today. Sincere Christians who are becoming seriously deluded by teachers using the name of Jesus, using the title of Christian, using the Bible as their weapon, for example, you might meet a false teacher that argues this way. If it's true that God wants to reveal truth to his children, and it is, right? Then it could be plausible, they may say, that God may not have been finished with just the Bible. So cults use this because they basically say that Bible was, it was a beginning revelation, but we have received further insight that that we have a new translation of it or we're adding new books of revelation to it. Or it could go into the realm of open Christianity where an end times obsessed internet prophet might have hooked into your life 
tempting you to look at their site yet again to get the weekly download of new revelation about what's happening in these troubled times, what dates to keep in mind, or what added ideas that God has given them about what's coming. So emotionally tempting and mentally attractive. Or Christian authors who today who write best-selling books that they claim are mostly or maybe even entirely dictated to them by God. Think about it. They may be laying a subtle mistruth alongside the idea that God does want to reveal truth to his children, and he has. <laughs> Interpreted now by the Holy Spirit through teachers. Oh, they'll twist it. That's a plausible delusion that he's talking about right there. How about somebody else that says, comes alongside in your life or you see online or whatever, and they say, if it's true that God loves you enough to provide for your material needs, and that is true, right? Matthew 6. If it's true that God loves you enough to provide for your material needs, then it could be plausible that he may want you to experience prosperity in wealth and health now and always. Do you see that one? That's pretty obvious taking one dimension of God's love and twisting it into this self-absorbed health and wealth theology. Every televangelist that's ever gotten in front of a camera and promised you your best life now is twisting that teaching. That's a plausible delusion. Or how about this one? Somebody may be telling to you or writing a book along the line that says, if it's true that God is love, and it is, and it could be plausible that he could never make his son suffer so much on the cross as a sacrificial atonement, but more as an example of how badly he feels about sin. In fact, a God of love is much more likely to give every person on earth a second chance after they die, in which God will sit down with them and become so convincing that everyone who's ever lived will collectively say at some point, might take thousands of years, but they'll say it, I'm sorry. And at that point, God will sweep everyone into heaven, sort of like a heavenly game of ollie ollie income free. <laughs> we laugh, but there are thousands of believers in America right now who've bought into that. Second chance theology, the non-existence of hell, universalism, and all that comes with it. Oh, there'll really be no judgment and no hell. That's a plausible delusion. And he's saying the greatest defense against that is that you have full assurance of understanding that you know what you know. So he hopes for people that they'll be biblically wise and he hopes also that they'll be biblically unified. He says, listen, at the end here he says, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is really interesting. Because of Paul's teaching, because of the faithful pastor they had named Epaphras, that church was holding to the truth. They weren't collapsing under the false teachers. Paul says, I'm rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. They were holding on. They had been knit together in doctrine, and it was protecting them. Your good order, it was the Greek word taxis, from which we get the word military tactics. 
It described a line of soldiers on a battle line facing an enemy and standing shoulder to shoulder. And he's saying, I see you doing that, church. The enemy's out there. He's trying to deceive you with these false teachers. But I'm rejoicing that you're all in good order. You've stayed at the battle line. One or two may have straggled off, but the majority of you are standing in a battle line and you're firm in your faith. Praise God. See, that's why any pastor can preach in hope. Because as he knows that the truth goes out over his people and it's rightly taught and the scripture stayed with and not fooled with or added to, and you get the scripture, not somebody's current train of thought, you're going to be built up in the truth. You'll have a full assurance and you'll be able to stand and not be deceived. So what should a pastor struggle for? What should a pastor be all in this about? Better ministries, bigger church, fewer problems. Those are good things, but I'll tell you what, they're all passing things. Paul said, oh no, I struggle that you might be preserved in the truth. There's an older pastor named John, who at the very end of his life in 3 John, verse 4, summed it up. He said, at the end of the day... I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's what pastors struggle for. That's what this is all about. That's why this is worth it. And that's what God will expect of me when I see him. Did I labor in this scripture? Did I lead you in faith so that you were kept in the faith? It's a challenging road, you know. In, in Paul's day, false teachers had to worm their way in person into small churches to begin to influence. And then they had to ride on horseback or a distance to infect new churches. And to spread their heresies, they had to send handwritten letters over long distances and get them read. Today, most false teachers are only a retweet or an algorithm away. Don't be deluded by plausible arguments. Guard your hearts and gratify mine. Fill your sails with the knowledge of Christ. Fill up your bandwidth with Him. The more satisfied you are with who He is and what He has said, the less susceptible you are. 